You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. 1946. For some of us, that was... Actually, I think for most of us, that predates us. There's a couple of us that uh, I think were around then. 1946, a guy named Vincent Schaefer, he climbed into a small single-engine prop plane uh, and uh, took off from a field in Schenectady, New York. And uh, he chased after this large cumulus cloud that was off in the distance, caught it, flew into the middle of it, and he dropped six pounds of dry ice. What do you think happened? It snowed. Those on the ground, those who were watching, it, was him, it said it looked, literally looked like the cloud exploded with the moisture. What had happened is the dry ice had created a chemical reaction and crystallized all the water vapor that was inside the cloud, and it snow was the result. So as a scientist, Schaefer knew that if you mix certain things together, you're going to get a reaction, that you're going to get certain, something's going to happen that currently isn't there. And he had discovered that dry ice causes water vapor to crystallize under certain conditions within a certain type of cloud. By seeding the cloud with the dry ice, Schaefer brought about a different reality than the one that currently existed. It was all there. It just hadn't manifested itself in that shape or in that form. Now, it's interesting. Schaefer wasn't the first person to seed the clouds to change physical reality. Almost 3,000 years prior to that, we see something similar with the prophet Elijah when he seeded the clouds, not with dry ice, but with a bold prayer. And that's the passage we're going to look at this morning from 1 Kings chapter 18, Uh, We can follow along on the screen, or if you have uh, uh, something that you have as well, your Bible or uh, one of your devices. Now, a little context for this. Um, The prophet Elijah is who this is the prominent person in this story. Um, And because of the sin of the country of Israel, King Ahab, who is probably one of the worst and most evil kings in the history of Israel, he was in power. And because of his sin and because of the sin that was being manifest throughout the country, um, God's, um, God sent a famine on the country of Israel, but he did it through Elijah. Elijah said, I'm going to pray, and then God's going to stop the rain. And he did that for three and a half years. Elijah prayed, and sure enough, it stopped raining for three and a half years. So we pick up the story then in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go out and look. Finally, the seventh time, his servant told him, I saw a cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm. And Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, story where we see that 
um, not just our own spiritual lives, Father, but literally physical reality can change because of your instruction. And so, Father, I ask that what we read and what we uh, kind of dig a little deeper here into the life of Elijah in this situation, that we would also see how you desire to change sometimes the realities in our life, that you want to bring into existence something that may not yet be there. So, Lord, help us to hear with ears of faith, and, Lord, that you would speak to us as you desire this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christ followers, we have a fundamental belief. There's something that's at the very core of who we are and what we believe, and that's this, that when we engage God, the impossible becomes possible. We can't explain it. We don't understand it. We can't predict it. We can't control it. But there is this sense that we serve and worship a God who is not limited by any circumstance, not limited by anything at all. So the question then in the context of what we're talking about here with Elijah, how can we seed the clouds for God's activity in our own life? So if, if this is something we know can happen, how is it we can actually do it? Now, I want to caution you. What I'm not going to say is that we can, this is a formula, or that we can somehow control God. Like if you do A plus B, you're going to get this. Um, this is not about manipulating God. It's not about uh, creating a formula so that you can get out of God what you want. God is not our spiritual Santa Claus. Okay? However, however, there's the same time, there's this principle of sowing and reaping that is incredibly biblical. Throughout Scripture, we see this, that there's this cause and effect relationship, that when we do what God asks us to do, when we do what we're supposed to do, God has promised us certain results and certain outcomes. So I'm not, this is not a scientific formula. What I want to talk about, what I talk about here are spiritual truths and what God is saying that we can expect in our own life. The Bible is very clear that some of the actions and behaviors that we do are pleasing to God, and they create opportunities for his blessing. For example, we know that humility is a catalyst for God's favor. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Why is that? What's wrong with having a little pride? You know, feeling good about yourself. And, you know, what's, what's wrong with that? I mean, maybe a little, isn't a little pride a good thing? See, here's what I think is humility doesn't mean that you're unaware of your talents or abilities or skills, whatever you have. It's not saying you have to be oblivious to it or ignore it. Humility is recognizing that the source of these things is not from you. It's from God. Yes, you may have an an amazing skill or ability or talent. Humility is recognizing that it's not on your own. It's not from you, but that God is the one that gave you that ability. Our accomplishments, our abilities should bring us to a place of gratitude, not pride. Now, left unattended, if if these feelings and recognition of our abilities and talents and what we can do, if we're not careful, they can lead to arrogance. Arrogance is all about me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I did it, I did it, I did it. It's all about me. All about me is the very essence of our sin nature. The very essence of sin is saying, I want to live a life on my own terms. I want to live it my way and the way I want to live it. And I don't want anyone telling me how I should live my life. That's the essence of sin. 
Now, I also think that we can have this idea of a false humility as well. Have you ever, and if you've done this, I don't mean to pick on you. I'm just more to point out something here. Have you ever heard somebody say, somebody gave them a compliment and they said, oh, it wasn't me, it was God. Or it wasn't me, it was Jesus. I mean, I remember thinking, it's like, well, I didn't see Jesus. It looked like you were doing it. So I don't know how, what do you mean, how, you know. So sometimes it's, it's I mean, they, they're, what they're trying to do is they're doing what I just said. They're recognizing that God is the source. And so I, so I get that. And I appreciate that. Sometimes I wonder, though, if it isn't better just, because if you're on the one who's just given the compliment and you get that feedback, it's like, well, yeah, it's like, I just gave you a compliment and I kind of got nothing. Or kinda, anyway. What I wonder is, when I propose is in this situation, is it better just to acknowledge it and say thank you for the kind words? than as you turn around to walk away, say, God, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. So you're, not, you're, you're acknowledging the human interaction, the human element, but you're very conscious of who's behind it and the source of your power and the source of what you're doing. So humility is a catalyst for God's favor. <clears throat> Another way that we can seed the clouds is through Generosity. Generosity activates reciprocity. Uh, we had a friend uh, when I was growing up, a friend, my dad's uh, kind of a peer of his, and uh, we got to be good uh, friends with their family. His name was Mike. Mike was one of the most generous people I ever knew. Uh, Mike, uh, at the time, my dad was the director of, of Teen Challenge, which is a drug alcohol live-in program. Um, and Mike was just a supporter. And... Um, the, the, the center had actually opened up a secondhand store as part of just a way to generate income and revenue. And so the, Mike loaned us this 14-foot high, big 24-foot box truck to go make pickups. And people would donate. We'd pick, kind of like a, the Habitat for Humanity has a restore. Similar idea, but it was more um, household goods. And... Uh, you know, so I was in it when I wasn't driving, but I was in the truck the one day that we tried to take a 14 foot high truck under a 12 foot bridge. <clears throat> we didn't make it. <laughs> got close. We got about halfway through. <sighs> it was uh, it was a long day. Mike's, resp- Mike's response was this. Immediate response was this. He didn't even pause. He said, you know what? The moment I bought that truck, I gave it to God. God wants to destroy his truck. That's up to him. <laughs> Mike's the kind of guy you order a restaurant and you're in his, I remember the waitress, I remember dad telling us he was, this actually happened. A really bad waitress was just gruff and mean and short, short and just kind of snarky in the comments. And my dad's response, he made something to, her, to him like, you know, I, I suspect that'll show up in her tip, won't it? You know, the way she's been treating us. Mike's response was this. Are you kidding me? She's going to get the biggest tip she's ever gotten. She's having a really bad day. I want to do something to change that. So you give a really big tip, and on the note it says, Jesus loved you, so do I. Have a great day with a big tip. That's generous. That's living generously. Uh, I just love that. And when we see that happens, it just re- there's just that give and take that happens in the kingdom of God. 
In fact, when it comes to this cause and effect we see in Scripture, no, is it never more evident than when it comes to giving and being generous? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this. So this isn't just these spiritual words of Paul or someone else. Jesus said this. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Second Corinthians <clears throat> Tells us this is chapter 9. And Paul is talking here and he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, listen to this, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Even in, in the Old Testament, in Psalm, the David wrote in Psalm chapter 41, he says this, Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor, those who are generous. The Lord rescues them when they are in trouble. The Lord protects them and keeps them alive. He gives them prosperity in the land and rescues them from their enemies. The Lord nurses them when they are sick and restores them to health. I love that. All because of their generosity. Here's, I'm convinced of this. If you need God's help today, generosity is a significant way to seed the clouds. So why is generosity such a big deal? I mean, why is this such an important thing in, the, in, in God's kingdom and in God's way of life? I actually think it's because it's the essence of who he is. It really is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Generosity and giving defines, I think, the, the, one of the core essence of who God is. So we're talking about humility. We've talked about generosity. A third way to seed the clouds is through simple obedience. <clears throat> simple obedience. Obedience sets the stage for unborn tomorrows. In Genesis chapter 12, <clears throat> um, God came to Abraham and in verse 2, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Can you imagine if God made that promise to you? I'm like, I just won the lottery or something. I mean, that's, that is just amazing. And for Abraham, it meant this. It meant wealth. It meant power. It meant security. It meant all those things. All those things that are human, that, are, that humanity would desire, we, that this, this sense of everything's going to be taken care of. And that was the promise that God gave Abraham. I mean, who wouldn't be excited about such a promise? I mean, that'd be amazing. But sometimes we get so excited about the promises of God, we forget about the rest of the conversation. We forget that before God told Abraham about these blessings in verses 2 and 3, in verse 1, he says this, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. And notice this. Abraham grew up in that area. All of his family was in that area. And at that time, it wasn't just like, oh, we're going to move to another country. In other countries, you're susceptible to attack. You have no power base. You have no protection. It was, in many ways, it was putting your life on the line. 
You're putting your life at risk to leave what was known, to leave what was comfortable, to go to a place. And God didn't say, here's the map. He didn't say, all right, I want you to go here. All right, I want you to go to a land I will show you. Which means as Abraham was going, it would become evident where he would needed to go. He didn't have the plan ahead of time. I mean, I've heard of people doing that for vacations. You know, just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, I'm making this up here, but we're going to go to Paris. We're going to go to Paris. What are you going to do when you get there? We don't know. We're just going to get off the plane and figure it out. I mean, who does that for a vacation? Really? That's a lot. (laughs) There's a part of me that really admires that. There's a part of me that just says, I just don't, it doesn't compute. Just because that's a lot of money for a ticket to get over there. And I would want to maximize my time. If I've got limited time, I want to make sure I do it all. So I have it planned out. But I understand that sometimes just figuring out as you go is just an adventure of life. And really, isn't that what God calls us to? The life God calls us to is not one of safety and security and ease. God calls us to a life of adventure. I mean, he really doesn't promise us that, hey, life is going to be easy. Come to Jesus and all your problems go away. Does that happen to anybody? No. Follow me. I will be with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Life is tough. Life is challenging. God doesn't promise us to be removed from that. He promises to be with us through it. And sometimes he asks us to take this step of faith before we even know where we're going, before we know what we're doing, before what that, we know what that even looks like. Before Abraham could receive the promises of God, he had to be obedient to what God had told him and step out in faith. He had to take that first step. So I think for us, today it says, if you need God provision in your life, make sure you've done what he's asked you to do. Is there something that he's asked you to do that you've been reluctant to do? 1 Samuel chapter 15 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, let me, also, let me just acknowledge the fact that sometimes our inaction is not necessarily disobedience. Sometimes I wonder if it's fear. And we're hesitant to, we, maybe God has put something in our heart. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's something that we know we're supposed to do. And we don't do it. It's not because we're rejecting God or because we're opposing God. It's because we're scared spitless about taking that step of faith. <clears throat> the only thing I can say, the only thing I can speak to that is this. This is a sports analogy. You can practice all day long. You can study your opponent. You can spend hours and hours watching tape and video of your opponent playing so you know their tendencies, you know what they do. You can have it all day long, you know, and weeks long. And actually, teams do this. They prepare and they plan and they practice and rehearse and do all this stuff for days on end. The fact, simple fact is this. You don't know the outcome of what's going to happen until you actually put the ball in play. Until someone throws the pitch, until someone snaps the ball, whatever sport you want to put, metaphor you want to put it in here. Until you actually do something, you don't know the outcome. And my experience is sometimes we're afraid of what might happen that's bad. And we lose sight of the fact of what might happen that's really, really, really good. But it's that uncertainty, it's that fear that sometimes keeps us, actually, it keeps us 
from doing what we know to do. It actually causes us to be disobedient to what God has called us to do and God has called us to be. In verse 4 of that passage in Genesis 12, we read just a minute ago. God said, you know, go to them and I'll show you and I will do this for you. In the verse 4, it says, so Abraham went as the Lord told him. And the rest is, as they say, the rest is history. So with regard to seeding the clouds, there's a fourth one. I've saved the best for last. Prayer that is passionate and persistent opens the way for the miraculous. <clears throat> um, I don't know if any of you have read uh, books by Malcolm Gladwell. You've heard him talk, maybe done a podcast or something. I love his books. Anybody? Some of you've got anybody else? Mad Malcolm Gladwell fans? Seriously? Okay. Um, he he writes about things that for me I, I find fascinating. One of the books uh, he wrote is called David and Goliath. I love the subtitle: Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Um, and so the premise of this book is that there's all these stories and accounts of people who have overcome insurmountable odds. It's just like, how in the world did that happen? But as he tells the stories and as he breaks it down, you realize it actually makes a whole lot of sense that it happened that way, just the way it did. In fact, and, and he, so he talks about, since this is part of the title, he talks about David and Goliath. And in one sense, the fact that you've got this boy, well, I'm a, I, I suspect Dave's probably an older teenager, but, but still young, got, you know, Goliath, this huge person, battle-tested, experienced. And the two were going to fight, and there's no way that David should have won. But what Gladwell points out is that a couple things. First off, we don't realize those slingshots they had back then were incredibly accurate. There's, we actually have paintings and pictures on the wall uh, where they actually did these uh, uh, drawings and stuff where they actually are hitting birds in flight with these slingshots. So they were incredibly accurate with what they could do with these slingshots. You know, obviously, hours and hours and hours of practice. Um, and what do we know David did? Now we know what David did while he was tending sheep all those years. He was, he's shooting things with his slingshot. We also know those slingshots, they've run tests. Those slingshots have the same velocity as a bullet coming out of a pistol. So you've got, so I'm sorry, 45 caliber. Okay, so we're not talking about a small, we're talking about a substantial um, um, uh, pistol here that can cause damage. So what, get what Gladwell points out um, is that David refused to um, battle um, Goliath on, on his on Goliath's terms. He changed the script. Um, Gladwell then actually goes on to tell another story. Um, he actually tells a story about a girls' basketball team of seventh and eighth graders. It's in a city league, kind of a city rec team. Um, one of the girls' father was pressed into being the coach. The guy grew up in the country of India, never played the game of basketball. And so now he's the coach of, this, of this, his daughter's team. Um, and his, in his account of it, he said, of the, the girls that were there, six of them have never played basketball before. And he said, that we weren't really tall. We didn't have a person that was tall. And he said, none of them could shoot well. In fact, here's his, I love his description. He said, these were the daughters of nerds and computer programmers. <laughs> they, this is in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, they worked on science projects and read long and complicated books and dreamed about growing up to be marine biologists. <laughs> so that was the group. But here's what he noticed. He noticed, this dad, he noticed that Americans, when they play basketball, it's a 94-foot-long court. 
94 feet. Usually when a team scores a basket, they just kind of jog down to the other end and wait for the other team to come back to them and try and score on their end. They concede 70 feet of the court. Basically said the game takes place usually on 24 feet on either end. They concede 70 feet of the court. So this guy says, we're not going to do that. We're to contest every inch of the court. And so they did what, if you're familiar with basketball, they apply, they apply what they call as a full court press. Some teams do it when they're desperate at the end of the game, the last couple minutes. The reason why they only do it then is because it is incredibly taxing on the team. It's exhausting to be that aggressive and that intent for that long a time. He says, we're going to do it all game, every game. That's all we're going to do is press. So this girl, this team of girls, none of whom were jocks, none of whom were basketball, you know, um, talented, just kept beating team after team after team after team. Um, they, lo- they only lost a couple of games, I was, uh, but in, in fact, one of the games that they lost was because one of the girls was sick and couldn't show up, and they only had to play with four players. So a team of four on five, and they still only lost by a couple points. Um, they just harassed the team constantly, and they kept making turnovers. So both David and the story and this girl's basketball team, what they did is they flipped the script. They flipped the script. They, they played to their strengths, not to their enemy's strengths. David didn't put on Saul's armor and fight the battle like Goliath was wanting to fight. He changed the game up. The girls didn't play to the strengths of their important. They didn't concede that 70 feet and let these taller girls, more accomplished girls set up plays and establish themselves and actually play the game they wanted to do. They played the game on their terms, not what was conventional. Paul talks about this. He talks about this very strategy in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm reading from the New Life version. He said, it's true, we live in a body of flesh, but we do not fight like people of the world. We do not use those things to fight with what the world uses. We use the things God gives to fight with, and they have power. Those things God gives to fight with destroy the strong places of the devil. I love that. So what's Paul saying here? Paul's saying that if we want a different outcome than the one that currently exists, we have to recognize and engage in spiritual warfare can't just be the physical way of approaching life and approaching things that we normally might. I think it's interesting in the passage I just read in the translation, the New Life Version, in four of the five sentences, Paul uses the word fight. In this context, these were not defensive postures. These were offensive, beyond the attack postures. Prayer should be a first response, not a last resort. Prayer brings about a different reality than the one that currently exists. Now, let's circle back to this thing with Elijah we read at the very beginning. <clears throat> he climbs to the top of the mountain, and it says that he bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. I have a picture of what I think that might look like. Imagine the picture up here. <laughs> Seriously? Can't get it? Rats. Okay. Um, there's a picture. I'll describe it for you. It's actually a guy laying on his face with his, his face to the ground with his face between his knees. The question I was going to ask, so imagine that in your, in your, your mind. Um, what, 
<clears throat> lost my, my place here, sorry. If you see that posture, if you see somebody in that position, imagine Elijah in that position, what does that posture suggest to you? For me, it's sincerity, humility. I also think it represents intensity. intensity. I don't think it's passive. I think it's an active, he's not cowering there. I think that Elijah's prayer was not hopeful, wishful thinking. It was an active response to what God had already told him. See, up at the beginning of the chapter, which part we didn't read, God had said to him, said, I'm going to bring rain again. He didn't say when. He didn't say the same, but he just knew that this was what God was wanting to do. And he was responding to that. So another thing I have about this whole story is what's with the sending the servant to look for the cloud seven times? Scripture doesn't tell us anything about that. Now we have something similar in that later on, the story of Elisha and the person of Naaman, where he had, Naaman has leprosy and Elisha says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And on the seventh time that he did that, he was healed of leprosy. So there we get the clear sense of, well, if he hadn't gone, if, he only, if he'd stopped at six, you know, he wouldn't have been healed. We don't get that same indication here that if the servant doesn't go look for another time, that God's not going to send rain. So there were, there's, here's what I think is going on here. This is, this is me. I don't think there's anything significant about the number seven per se. We know in the Bible that seven is a spiritual number and it's used often. I think, it's an, I think the whole thing of the idea of seven times is evidence of expectation on the part of Elijah. I get the sense that Elijah in this situation is like the little kid in the backseat of the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Go see if there's a cloud. Nothing yet. <sighs> Go again. And he's praying and praying and praying. Nothing yet. Go again. Expecting, expecting, expecting. It goes back to what I mentioned a week or two ago about the prodigal son, the father seeing him off in a distance before he even gets home, which tells us this father has been looking for his son, has never given up hope. His posture was always one of looking and searching and he was expecting his son to someday return. What I see in Elijah is a man who was convinced that persistent prayer seeded the clouds and opened the way for God to bring the rain. And for reasons known only to himself, God doesn't always answer us just after one prayer. Sometimes we have to pray through to the breakthrough. Wishful thinking won't bring about the change we desire. Sometimes we have to seed the clouds with bold, faithful prayers. What about you? What has God put in your heart for which you need to persistently seed the clouds with prayer until you see the breakthrough you desire? What might God want to say to you this morning? Listen to this song as Julia sings. Perhaps God might want to plant a seed of faith in your heart here this morning. Roaring 
Thank you, Father, for um, your love for us. Father, some of us are here this morning uh, needing a touch from you. Father, we come to you expecting. And as we've gathered here to worship and acknowledge you, and uh, Lord, we also come recognizing that we need you. Some of us need a physical touch. Some of us need a financial miracle. Some of us need restoration in our relationships. Lord, there's a number of needs I have no doubt exist here among us today. So Father, as we've come, we've come to this point in the service, Lord, we acknowledge you as Lord of all. And Father, we call upon you. Lord, we want to seed the clouds with our prayer, believing for a different outcome than the one that currently exists, believing and expecting you to intervene on our behalf. So, Father, as we seed the clouds with faith, as we seed the clouds with prayer, with our obedience and generosity, Lord God, may you provide. May you show yourself strong in our lives, we pray. Lord, we do so not with fear. We do so with great expectation, for we know that your desire is for us. You love us. So, Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord God, that we serve a risen Savior. Not there's the tomb is empty and your power is no weaker today than it was when you created the heavens and the earth. So Father, today, today, Lord God, we call out to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. <clears throat> Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.